Thank you very much for downloading the Trap One podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Pete. And I'm a phrase. Uh... <laughs> You're you're winning because you've got a sibilant name. <laughs> it's been the rose. I, like, I can't you can't do it. I can't, or Mark, you can't do it in an excitatory voice, can you? <laughs> oh, thank you very much for joining me, guys. The Ice Warriors is out on vinyl today from the good people at Demon Music Group. Um, they've produced another beautifully presented and packaged Doctor Who record. Uh, this is a six-parter, so it comes in a box rather than the gatefold sleeve like the four-part stories. Uh, it's the same size as the Abominable Snowman release from 2019 that it will sit alongside on the shelf. Um, the cover's got a very striking picture of an ice warrior on it in a um, sort of ice cave with another ice warrior looking in and the, the dome in the background. Um, and then each individual record sleeve has a small, uh, a partial kind of piece of that picture. You can put them all together to make a, a big version of it. Uh, and then on the back you've got a, a cool sort of long shot of the dome you can see the whole dome with the TARDIS packed in the foreground as well which is, uh, which is really nice and it's then the lovely. records themselves um, are molten ice so they've got this sort of translucent um, as though you were looking through ice and you can see the features of, a, of an ice warrior um, through, the, uh, through the molten ice to uh, for, who's frozen within uh, so it's a, a lovely thing, and I think a story that works quite well on audio. Um, something about the sort of the, the whispering, sibilant voices, as you said, Pete, of the of the Ice Warriors works really well with the uh, with the vinyl. I think basically the, some something about the '60s stories just sound great on on vinyl. Um, and we also have Fraser Hines narrating the action um, on these as well, in between the, the pieces of dialogue. Uh, so the Ice Warriors from 1967 um, Pete you're very partial to a story where a group of humans shelter in a dome from monsters <laughs> on an environmentally devastated earth yeah it's another yet another environmental message being rammed down our throats by Doctor Who <laughs> um, honestly if you're not used to if you're not used to that then, then uh, you, you need to build up your immunity to it because yeah <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's it really uh, doesn't at all be subtle but although people watching listen to it now could be like well so much for global warming as, <laughs> uh, as they tend to like to do every time a drop of uh, a drop of rain falls or a flake of snow even falls um but uh, they they really go for it with the whole icy atmosphere, don't they? Yeah, and the music is for for a Dudley Simpson score. It's it's really sort of left field, isn't it? It's really electronic, and um, for, by, by his standards, I think he decided to they let him play with some toys he didn't normally play with or something at the Radiophonic Workshop because there's uh, all this um, organ sounds and things that he usually does. But yeah, they're made much more creepy. I think he had. Um magnetic tapes on this one um, I think that's the, the secret of that um, I was watching the um, Dudley Simpson is Doctor Who project by Jess Jacobic um, and he did um, the Ice Warrior theme on that it's really worth um, watching that one and he, he mentioned that um, it was magnetic tapes um, involved in this one so that's probably why it's a little bit different than what we're used to from Dudley yeah Dudley goes Delia it's, it's yes. like, yeah <laughs> yeah I suppose that's because they're setting this one. This this is on Earth in the future, isn't it? And what we had running up to this were Tomb of the Cybermen, Abominable Snowmen. They're doing all the old, the 50s, 60s horror films, aren't they? It's like the, the Mummy's Tomb and then yeah. the Abominable Snowmen. And this time it's Thing from Another World, which the, the film, so so I'm, I'm geekishly into that film, which is of which the more famous the thing 
is a remake in the 80s. Uh, and uh, and it is pretty much like they were, they were going through these 1950s things for inspiration, which now I always think of the Hinchcliffe era as doing that, but actually they were just as much into it back in the Troughton days, weren't they? Yeah. And Fraser, this is your first experience of this story and you've done a 20th century Doctor Who fan um, kind of approach to it by reading the target novelization first and then watching the story. Yeah. How did you find that? Um, it was interesting. Um, it's something I've, I've wanted to do for a little while and I knew that, you know, not having seen or heard the story but having the, the target on my shelf, I thought, right, well, we'll do this then. We'll, um, we'll read the book, watch the story and, you know, look at it that way. The... The novelizations it was really good. I, I mean, I did enjoy it. Um, There's a few things which which kind of jarred a little bit. One of them was the um, the way that he's written the Doctor's speech. Yeah. It's very it's very strange. He's um, he comes out with a lot of chaps and lads in it. He keeps calling Jamie lad, and it was it took us a while to kind of figure out why that was bothering us. Um, and then I twigged. It's it's because obviously Peter Salas is in this, who is Clegg. Clegg, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's in Wallace from Wallace and Gromit. So it was. I got this into my head that I was reading Wallace being Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> what a career that guy had! Everything yeah. from, from Ice Warriors to animated Moon missions via a hundred thousand years and a million episodes living in the in the Yorkshire Tales. <laughs> <laughs> so, he's got, he's got to be one. I mean, he was already pretty well. I think he, I think all of the cast for this were, were sort of familiar faces around the time it went out, weren't they? But um, he's one who definitely became like, national treasure status mm-hmm. later. Yeah, yeah. You've made me think, uh, Fraser, it must have been the, the novelisation of this that, that I first knew, knew it through in, in the 80s as well. Yeah. Uh, and then, I don't know if this soundtrack originally came out before it got found and released. Uh, it was They did a pretty rapid turnaround when they found it in, in the late 80s, I think. Or I, No, I might be mixing up the timelines. It's easy to do, isn't it? <laughs> the tapes <laughs> the were thing. found in 1988 uh, in the back of a cupboard. Not, not in Hong Kong. Not in That's Hong Kong. Much closer to Hong Kong. In a BBC <laughs> building, they were clearing out, um, and they they found the uh, the four episodes that they've got in the back of a cupboard there. But no, I, I don't think it had a release until the the box set that came out with the it had the the VHS of the episodes, the CD of the two of the other two, I think, um, and then it was just sort of like a very truncated version of episodes two and three that, that came. And it was a little keyring as well. It was a little ice warrior keyring I seem to remember that came with it. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Because I, I managed I had a friend with a brother who was in Dwas in like the late eighties. And so he managed to get a copy of it on VH or like a pirate pirate copy of it within a few weeks of it coming out. And I I, I got this tape in my hand. A few, a few weeks of it being discovered, I mean, or being announced that it had been discovered, because immediately the, the archives leaked like a sieve to, to people, I guess, who, who were in the know and had the right connections. And I just I, I really quickly did a calculation on the back of a piece of paper about what time it was in Australia, because I had an Australian pen friend. 
that's, uh, who was my VHS pusher. I used to send him copies of the McCoy era, and he'd send me all the Pertwee and Tom Baker ones that they were so bored of seeing every single week in Australia <laughs> that he taped for me. And I, I phoned him to tell him I'd got this, and I got my maths completely wrong, and it was like four o'clock in the morning when I phoned his dad. <laughs> and, and I thought it was him, and I was going, I've got the eyes for you. Oh, oh, could I speak to Mark, please? <laughs> He's got this very, very grumpy Australian dad saying, do you know what time it is, mate? Uh, that's a slight diversion, but that's where the eyes for you always takes me. But yeah, they did quite an edit job on that. Um, the uh, the version that came out on the VHS with the little telesnap reconstructions of part of the missing two parts. It's about fifteen minutes, isn't it, for both episodes? They sort of crack through it. But there's so much atmosphere you can in, in this story. You can you can. See, it's not plot heavy. It's not sort of got twists and turns. But you can really see how kids in the sixties were just taken to another another time by it, uh, with, with the design and the sound. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's funny that you say that, um, you know, episodes two and three were truncated to 15 minutes. It's really episodes, I think, four and five that you would want that to happen at. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a shame we don't get to pick, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's where the story sort of, you know, starts treading water, really, for me. Um, you know, when you, you hit that bit, um, when I went back and watched um, the the episodes themselves and then went back to the book I think um, the book itself is about 145 pages long the first 100 pages or takes it up to the end of episode th- 3 and then episode 3 itself is about 10 pages episode 4 is another 10 pages and then right. <laughs> so you, you know once, once you've read the book and you go back and look at the book and compare it with the, the show you can see where the pattern is but <laughs> having said that um, episode four obviously has um, Victoria in the ice caves being chased by the the ice warrior with, with Dudley Simpson's um, tune playing over the top and who would want to lose that? Yeah. yeah. yeah it's that thing is that one person's padding is another person's th- thrilling yeah. plot development that doesn't necessarily have twists and turns but it's just uh, yeah but um, yeah Victoria does get to do a lot of a lot of leading the ice warrior around in the caves, and this, she said, it says in the interviews that um, he uh, he had real trouble not bumping into the set and destroying it because it's, <laughs> it, it's hard to picture how huge these. It's only when you look at the actors, isn't it? like Bernard Breslau and Sonny Caldinez, they are huge guys, and you don't quite see it when you just look at the ice warrior costume because they're so in proportion. Uh, but yeah, they really are giants. And they, although they've got like quite big names like Peter Salis and the other parts, I think um, the director had the idea of, of casting sort of shorter people generally as well, because the three um, leads are all quite um, diminutive, aren't they? And then the so the other characters are as well, so that it really highlights the or emphasizes the, the height of the Ice Warriors. Because um, I think the other behind the scenes stuff that's really interesting is how Bernard Breslau came up with the voice and uh, and all the stuff that is really associated with them kind of up to you know their appearances in in the modern series um he just came up with all that in rehearsal and i guess that's getting a a a known actor to do that part um rather than you know kind of a, a stuntman or something that's um that's just kind of big and and can can handle that kind of costume yeah, on the DVD, the uh, there's an interview with the designer, and uh, and he's like he's like saying, oh, well, really, it was such a waste putting someone as talented as as uh, as Bernard Breslau in the costume because it could have been anyone. But 
and I was like, no, it obviously wasn't because he makes it. He really makes him a a, a nasty villain mm. uh, with a, who's, who's just got this completely evil streak and just enjoys terrorizing people. Uh, so he's, he's not. It's not a not just a lumbering monster. He is a he's a, he's a baddie as well as a a guy in a costume, and it is such a good costume, isn't it? Yeah. It is, and he, he makes the best of it. He, you can tell he is, you know, putting a performance in. You know, he's there's facial movements, there's head movements all around. Um, he's not just, you know, a man in a mask. He is actually <laughs> trying to get the performance out there for everyone. It's a great design, I think. You know, not just sort of um, like painting his jaw, but but having that proper the, the proper kind of covering of his mouth that give makes the mouth look more. Um, like an animal or an alien, and and the neck as well. So when he, because he sort of does that sort of uh, movement with his head, like a snake yeah. or something, yeah. and and you can see oh, yeah. the uh, the way all that moves with it. Um, it's terrific design. They're they're so imposing uh, and impressive. But the the sort of the hair as well that, that suggests you know it's sort of a an animal in armor, uh, or you know like a living being in armor. It's, uh, yeah, and that all grew, that all grew out of the design process, didn't it? Originally, they were just supposed to wear Viking. There's going to be men wearing Viking-like costumes or something like that. It said in the script, and it was the designers who really ran ran with the thing of no, let's make them actually. The, the suit is actually who they are. What they are, mm-hmm. actually, what they are. Yeah. I love the bit where the the doctor meets them for the first time. It's like episode five, is it? Um, when he when no it's five or six when he arrives at the spaceship and they finally let him in through the airlock and he just takes one look at them and turns around uh, <laughs> to leave again, it's uh, it's pure trout and that it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, he's great at being frightened by monsters and then coming up with something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like um, those moments in other stories where there's him and Jamie and and he's like after you no after you and all that sort of stuff. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think a special mention has to go because I did googling and everything to find out her name. The Howley voice woman at the start, the spooky space voice thing at the start, uh, Joanne Brown, uh, which is not a name that that's going to be destined to become a household name. Sadly, I don't know, but she did, uh, she seems to have just been a session musician who did bits and bobs in the sixties and seventies. Uh, but um, she really she really goes for it, doesn't she? And, and it makes it. It gives it that little extra something, doesn't it? I liked it when they had this whole period of giving all the episodes their own little intro mm. thing that sort of lasted for three years, the last couple of Troughton years and Pertwee's first, wasn't it? Sort of up to Inferno still had one, maybe that was it. Yeah, it, it just uh, it, it make, lets you really know you're in this particular production, doesn't it? It stamps its identity on it. And yeah, that and I think really that's, that's really going to come out with the vinyl. Um, mm. the, you know, they straight out the traps with that on you with the the soprano. That's yeah. really gonna, you know, set the tone when you when you stick that record on, isn't it? It does. It sounds great. Yeah, it's 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 eerie, and and when you've just got the sort of the soundscape, it it, it speaks of sort of um, like kind of vast em- emptiness of, of just kind of ice and snow. It's it's uh, it's brilliant, really good. So obviously, the thing that everybody talks about is the dodgy science in this one as well. The, um, the fact that it's. Uh, <laughs> That the plants aren't producing carbon dioxide anymore, so <laughs> because, yeah, that is it that we've eaten them all, or that we just decided we didn't need plants anymore, so we got rid of them all. I think that was it, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, we didn't need them because we got the food machines, so all the uh, farmland they built uh, houses on, and then realized that the plants weren't there to create the carbon dioxide. <laughs> <laughs> Terror of the NIMBYs. If only, if only we'd listened to the NIMBYs. <laughs> <laughs> it's. 
That's not how plants work, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, in credit to him, he, he does fix that in the in the novelisation. Um, yeah. You know, it's um, it's it's a duty rather than you know plants not producing carbon dioxide, which is the opposite of how they work. It's um, recycling gas. We've recycled too much gas and. Some, something like that. It's a different yeah, it explanation. A, in the that was thing. We get the gist. Yeah, there was a germ of an idea. Mitchell, <laughs> how many people must have said to him in between him writing the story going out and writing the novelization? <laughs> you do know that's not how plants work. He's like, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it in the book. <laughs> At least in those days as well, you could write the novelization and go, well, there we are, the definitive version that everyone's going to remember. <laughs> no one is ever going to. He was probably him who shoved them all down the back of that cupboard at the BBC <laughs> to try and stop people pestering him about his, uh, his, his plant problems. <laughs> I love that they live in a futuristic world where um, poor reception on video link-ups proves to be a persistent bane of their lives. <laughs> they got that bit right, didn't they? And, and the, uh, the people who are sick of experts that want to turn oh. their back on, um, <laughs> on medicine and facts and science. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and this, but this really, this is definitely telling us to not trust computers, isn't it? There's no, uh, th- this is a week when logic is bad, isn't it? It kind of alternates. <laughs> you could say that the Troughton era at least presents us with both sides of the coin, because you'll have one week where it's, we must be logical and sort this out properly, and then the next week it's, you're a slave to a computer. <laughs> yeah, we'll cover this from all angles. <laughs> the thing I like about this story is, though, that you, you do get both sides of that argument. So you have, um, you have Clint, who is very much, I am you know, driven by the computer. I cannot make a decision without the computer. And then you've got Penley, who is sort of the other side of that spectrum, who is, no, I would rather stay in the hills with me Scottish friend um, scavenging food than, you know, live under the rule of the computer. So you get this these two very strong opposing views, which by the end of the show, by the end of episode six, have actually come together a little bit in the middle. You know, they've actually both... Yeah. seen each other's side a little bit and now they're willing to work together again on the basis that they've, they've both softened a little bit towards each other. Yeah, yeah I suppose Storr's really the, the other extreme, isn't he? And, and Penley's kind of in the middle because he's experienced both um, both kind of lifestyles there. Um, Trap one regular Jason Miller, who's, who's tweeting his way through all the Doctor Who stories from the start at the moment. Um, very much worth checking out his really pithy tweets. Um, he's at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels. He believes that Penley and Storr are Doctor Who's first same-sex couple. Uh, what do you think of that theory? Yeah, I've seen that reading before, and and, and you can definitely take it. Particularly, I mean, <laughs> did, or did Clinton Penley have this huge lover's tiff beforehand that that, that has now pretty much brought uh, brought Western civilization to the peak of destruction because because uh, he's uh, uh, got gone off with this rugged Scotsman who he then trades in for a much prettier, younger Scotsman in the form of Jamie around about episode episode five. Penley has definitely got a type if that's the case, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but uh, but that, that that that's my bias because obviously when when you are gay you 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 do look for these things because it's denied it's locked out of so many stories that um when when you when you get something that can be read that way it can it, it's it's really nice and and you think well this makes up for all the times it's never been told but I did I did read somewhere else that when they were writing it it was meant to be that Clint and Penley were both in love with Miss Garrett. This is just turning the whole thing into a hotbed, I know. Right. Uh, and that, that was part of the reason that they'd fallen out. But then that got edited out for being a, 
too borderline hanky-panky, uh, but, um, or maybe just not considered interesting enough and let's do sciencey stuff instead. But um, yeah, no, they, they really do. I mean, Penley and Store do have the most fantastic couple bickering <laughs> scenes. And when uh, there's a bit where Jamie's ill and he's like, oh, you look after him. I'm going out to get the medicine. <laughs> and it's completely, uh, you know, I'm walking the dog. You can do the shopping kind of moment. <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's yeah. I am. Um, I hadn't considered that, and you know, when you when you look at it that way, then yeah, that is a an interpretation. I think um, what I like though is that you you never really get the explanation as to what the fallout was. Um, it's just kind of it's more in, you know implicitly implied that it was one thing or another. Is there's no one actually says well this happened. And I think that's one of the strengths of the script really that it, you know we're not sort of spoon fed. Um, you know this sort of thing. We are left to our own. Um, you know, imaginations and devices to kind of put the pieces together and see exactly what it was that that caused this fallout. And yeah, that works as a as a explanation more than as as well as anything else, I suppose. Yeah, and and, and what 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 makes it so readable is that every all well, these actors are just all so good. I mean, even Store, who's really going for it with the uh, with the with the, the rogue Scotsman, and there's, there's the bit where he's um, uh, raging about how much he hates the scientists and how the ice warriors are going to be my friends, and and he very it's like he's almost just managed to stop himself from saying, "I don't care if the ice warriors killed them all; they're English." Uh, but he may, I mean, I mean, they're scientists, <laughs> but because uh, he puts in a great turn in. Um, of the Zygons, doesn't yes. it? The same actor mm. is is back. Ang- Angus Lenny is back in that, being a not completely dissimilar character yeah. <laughs> in Terror of the Zygons. And uh, yeah, they all they all just hold the camera and and, and hold your um, hold your attention and on, on audio just as well because they're, they're just uh, absolutely top notch cast. Yeah, I, I felt a lot more sympathy for for Clint this time. Um, I think you know because. The way he's just, everyone's like, oh, he's, he's so heartless and he's a slave to the computer and everything else. But I think partly it's the performance, but there is more there as well. Like, he has these moments where he sort of tries to open up to people. So he says to Arden about the ice where he says, you know, oh, yeah, I would have I would have brought it back as well. Um, and he, when he says to the doctor about making a mistake in choosing Penley in the first place. Um, and uh, it's, it's only occurred to me this time that that's, why he's so scared to make a decision because the last decision he made was to hire Penley who's who's kind of left him in the lurch um and basically he's got like a lot of pressure he's got a tough job <clears throat> the the whole future of the world is is depending on him um Penley's took off everyone just slags him off all the time and, and says he's like a robot um but he does have these little kind of moments where he tries to make a joke and it always lands really awkwardly like a kind of David Brent like type of way um, <laughs> oh, there's a fantastic scope for a, the Office spin-off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Office 3005. It's a base under siege, but with David Brent yeah. uh, in, David, in, the, in the director's seat. David Clint. Yeah, Clint, Clint, unusually, I think, Clint is, we, we see him pretty much already losing it by about 10 minutes into episode one. He's already unhinged, isn't he? Often, often that comes about halfway through with a base under siege, but this guy is like, just seems to be on the verge of completely snapping right, right from the off. It's interesting that that, um, that bit you mentioned, Mark, about um, where he you know, says to Arden, I would have done the same. That's missing from the novel. Um, that bit's not actually in the book, um, which is which really misses. You know, it's a big miss, to, if, if you ask me. Um, in the novel, you kind of just you you are by way of prose given a lot more of an insight into Clint's thinking. Um, you know, there's there's an element of, of pride with him, which is 
not a fantastic out attribute, but it is one um, that he is being picked for this job because he never fails and he is on the verge of failing. And you have that scene where the you know the computer goes around saying, "Oh yes, Australasia holding the Gracias back," you know, um, Asia improving the Gracias, and then Britannicus, yeah, Gracias encroaching, and <laughs> that's no point. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> world beating. To, to so you've got world beating ionizer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's there's that kind of element to him, um, and but like you say, there's you know the the, the failure. There's, there's there's a lot of things like that that do drive him, which um, are more explicit in the book, but do come across in the in the story as well. I think because it is such a wonderful performance. It's brilliant, and he, came, um, Peter Barkworth, came up with the the cane, um, that idea in rehearsals, um, which weirdly seems to add a lot to his character. I think, doesn't it? Because uh, he um, he's when when he's uh, sort of charging around the control room, especially in that first scene where the doctor's following him. Um, it really seems to it it makes it draws your attention to him a lot. I think. Mm, yeah, definitely, and then it's it's the. Um the way he delivers his lines, the the clipped manner in which he's, you know, he speaks is, you know, it really sets him out as I am the authoritarian here. I'm the one in charge. It's, um, it's really good. I think I'll, again, that's probably something that's going to come over nicely on the vinyl. Yeah, I, th- I think it's uh, yeah, I think it's terrific. It's because he's got the thing of sort of wanting to be liked, but but also wanting to be respected as well. And yeah, not quite sure how much. To, of himself to, to to give away that type of thing so it's very good yeah this this was broadcast I think looking at the dates just a little while after The Prisoner first went out on ITV um, and I don't know whether that was already happening when they started filming it um, but uh that, that that thing of a, of a system, an all-controlling system, an all-controlling computer, in, in the case of this or in the village, it's just it's the community, and they have pick, uh, they have computers there as well that they all have to sort of obey. Um, it, it, that totalitarian future where you have to surrender your individuality just seems to be a really really uh, pertinent thing in sixty seven. sixty seven, isn't it? Yeah, they're. Um, it's really of of its time as they could see that computerization beginning to kick off and, and it, it was really scary I, I love the doctor being able to say that there's something wrong with the pitch of the computer like he's listening to the the hum of an engine oh. of a car or something and that lovely line that, that that whole scene was was i love that that was you don't often see patrick troughton be very doctory i don't feel but that was a very doctory scene where he just walks in he knows exactly what's wrong and he knows how to fix it and he fixes it and you don't often see that with him he's more sort of like um, sort of like the Columbo character who shuffles in and figures it out at the end sort of thing but he's straight in off the trap oh that doesn't sound right yeah, it's first scene, isn't it? In his first scene, he, will, he wins them all over and they immediately know that he's on side and, and, uh, and, and can help them. Yeah, that's unusual actually, isn't it? Yeah, yeah like a take charge moment like that. He doesn't, he doesn't get that that often, does he? No. It leads to the sort of like the next scene with him and Clint, which, um, you know, when Clint basically does the exposition of what's going on, but does it in such a clever way where he's like, well... You, Doctor, you tell me the exposition. You know, here's the scenario. You've got 45 seconds. Now you tell me what's going on. And that is such a fantastic way to, to you know, bring your viewers up to speed as to what there's, what's happening with the story. I think that's 
that's just brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it's it is really quick, and uh, and it's it's almost like the Doctor's kind of spitballing what's going to happen in the next three or four years of his adventures. It's like <laughs> a poisonous cloud, space plague, uh, but then but it's that great, yeah, that great thing of sucking up all the little bits of evidence that he's got and showing us how showing us how, how clever he is by thinking it through and coming and correctly deducing what the problem is, rather than just some you know. A writer just taking a shortcut might have the doctor just know and announce it. Uh, it's really nice to have him rattling through all the possibilities and hitting the right one. Another talking about the script. Another really lovely line is is when he's describing what's happened, and he just says, "One year there was no spring." Um, it's, it's a really really nice line. I think of uh, quite an evocative line to describe the way that the the ice age has come. I think in a way it hails his, other than, you know, like this is a, a base under siege in a, a season that's predominantly made up of base under sieges, but he's tapping into some real pure Doctor Who here. It occurs to me that the story is peppered with names of things that are going to be repurposed and become better known later in the series. So Varga and Store and Omega um, is, um, but the, the most successful thing being coming up with Ice Warriors, which is then kind of misattributed to the, uh, to the Ice Warriors for the whole rest of their existence. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because for some reason, I think, I thought that it was, well, actually, I thought it was Victoria that first named them because there's the, the 11th Doctor novel, um, The Silent Stars Go By, where they, they kind of point to that thing about them being called the Ice Warriors. I think, like, uh, Amy or whatever says, that's a funny name for some aliens. And the Doctor goes, yeah, it's weird. Um, my friend uh, Victoria called them that, and it just sort of stuck. Um, but it isn't Victoria. It's the um, it's Arden, isn't it? Or, or one of his mates, when they just pull him out of the ice, just goes, oh. One of that gang, yeah. He's a yeah. proper ice warrior. A proper ice warrior. Yeah. <laughs> proper ice warrior, isn't it? But mind you, this, so this is set thousands of, or hundreds of years, at least, after the Seeds of Death. So it's possible that everyone in it knows what the Ice Warriors are and, and just doesn't mention it generally. Because <laughs> if, if he just happened to be an archaeologist, if Walters is an archaeologist, he might have read the file on the attack on the moon base a thousand years ago. This is tenuous. But also, <laughs> I'm thinking of sending this to Big Finish right here, right now. Because <laughs> it would explain it. But no, that's clearly not what they meant. <laughs> One thing that doesn't get picked up again later, sadly, when Clint is feeling all woozy after he has one of his stress moments, uh, Miss Garrett um, recommends that he goes and spend some time on the vibro chair. And uh, and we've not had seen any vibro chairs. And I'm, I'm imagining, you know, that Homer Simpson, ep- that Simpsons episode where Homer goes in the electric chair and it's like, I mean, electric massage chair. And it's uh, all the 2001 space effects kick off and he almost regenerates in it. Uh, I'm imagining maybe that's what the vibro chair is, but we never saw it. The budget never stretched. In my notes, by the way, I've kept referring to Miss Garrett as Miss Frosty in my own notes because that's how she's introduced in the, nar- the narration at the start. It's like the Frosty Miss Garrett. Uh, it's like, okay, it's the woman in science in the 60s. Um, but hey, it, the, 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 the Troughton era had this thing of, of having professional young women in positions of authority. And that the fact of them being there doing that is always presented as a rocking the boat kind of thing. But they, but then they almost invariably end up being the ones who actually save the day and are the sensible one while their uh, while their highly strong emotional male bosses go to pieces. Uh, it's uh, it's a, it's a real trope in late sixties who that then sort of gets gets buried in the seventies but sort of comes back again much later. Which is uh, yes, yeah, interesting how these things two steps forward, one step back kind of yeah, situations she, she's very proactive she's she tries to act as the peacemaker and trying to get penley uh to come back to the base 
Um, she's and then she gets the the omega factor notes, doesn't she? And gets them to the doctor. She's uh, yeah, she's doing a lot of the work. Um, like apart from at the end, she starts. She gets very sort of religious about the computer, doesn't she? <laughs> yeah, and that, I found that that was quite a sort of twit, a disturbing character twist that she's the mm. sensible one, and yet when push comes to shove, she still she starts to get yeah, like like you said, it, it, it it's it's really we must believe in the computer, isn't it? Yeah. Again, coming coming back to the novel, there's a there's a bit of an explanation around that in the in the target because she is um, the sort of acolyte of, of Clint, as it were. She looks up to Clint. She, you know, um, she's a person we want in a career looking at Clint as being the model boss, as it were. So she's sort of like, um, you know, very much impressed by him. You know, so right. she, I think she's from that view. She is then. You know, well, he's obsessed with the computer. Um, that's the way to do things. So she's very, I think that scene at the end where neither of them can decide what to do and it, it kind of falls down to Penley um, is is possibly through that. You know. Yeah, it all stacks up, doesn't it? Yeah, that she's got that much. She's got as much faith in in him as he has in in, mm. in Clint as he has in the computer. Yeah. yeah. So it's actually a bit towards it. I think someone actually gets the line, computer says no, towards yeah. the end. Yeah. Delivered in a very different style to Little Britain <laughs> um, and with much bigger con- consequences. And then, yeah, the computer is our supreme advisor. <laughs> it's a great, um, a great little twist on the sentence. Uh, Royce, Roy Skelton of, uh, of Zippy fame, isn't it? He's uh, <laughs> the voice of the computer. <laughs> Yeah. It, it's that is it, I, I don't know does it get better does it get easier to understand as the story goes on or is it just that I, my brain got into the wavelength of it because in episode one I did find it quite hard to pick pick out what it was saying but then further on I was fine maybe you just tune into it after a while possibly or you know possibly they've recorded the first episode and went oh that doesn't work yeah. too well we'll, uh, we'll have to soften the <laughs> yeah, turn it down to nine, Roy. Turn it down to nine. <laughs> you think yeah. something that important, you'd want it to be very clearly understood. You, you wouldn't. Uh, who's making these these huge decisions? You wouldn't. Oh, did you catch that? I'm not sure. Was <laughs> yeah. <it? laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think which Cyberman story it was. I can't understand them, and I think maybe the Wheel in Space, where it's just so much buzz about the voice, you actually can't make out what they're saying and you know if you think we we watch these on you know big widescreen televisions with you know surround sound and whatnot and what must it have been like in the 60s with you know a screen the size of a laptop in the corner of the room essentially yeah i wonder if you went to school and had an argument about what it what it said yeah uh so you got some some pretty cool outfits as well for the uh the staff uh of the of the base yeah, unless you're a nice young Victorian lady, in which case they are disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite nice seeing Victoria getting that, um, get, getting a little bit of in-character reaction to that, that she's not just generic plucky sidekick girl. She is genuinely shocked by these, not even miniskirts, <laughs> that yeah. they're wearing. They're, they're space tabards, aren't they? <laughs> you know, like extremely figure-hugging space tabards. Uh, Jamie's quite quite partial to them, isn't it? If, um, <laughs> Funny that. If, yeah. if, if that is Jamie, and it wasn't just they left the camera running on Fraser Hines um, between the, <laughs> <laughs> the line between the line between Jamie and Fraser Hines is very blurred, isn't it? <laughs> just generally. <laughs> and Victoria gets that awkward, but nevertheless completely 
in character line when when they say that you might be evacuated to Africa and, and, to, and her face she's just horrified. No, no, not Africa, because of course to a to a young Victorian posh girl that's going to have been she's going to have been told her whole life that it's this foreboding barbarous place and it's it's good that I think that they put that in to make you and obviously they're prompting they're trying to prompt the kids watching it in particular who, who are used to seeing refugees coming from other parts of the world to, to go through the thought process of realizing that if the tables were turned it could be you who was being sent to a different part of the world and you might not like it actually uh, it's just uh, little little moments like that that do because they don't often in the Troughton era do they really make much of Jamie uh, and and well, of the companions' real backstories. I mean, but Jamie's got that brilliant persona where just anything that gets explained to him from just beyond his time, he just goes, "Oh, hi, that," and just <laughs> and just rolls with it. Um, which they definitely learned their lesson from Katerina, didn't they? <laughs> it's like, yeah. but what is a door handle? It's, um, <laughs> they just said, "No, let, let's not do that. Let's just have them just roll with it." But there's a moment where Store says to Jamie, "I'm a loyalist," and I'm like, oh, "I think that would make Jamie want to kill you if I'm remembering my history right and who was on which side." But uh, but they brush over it really quickly and like get interrupted by someone bursting in or something. So it's like, oh, was it by the giant bear? Which is actually a little bear. The bear is really impressive on audio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, but have they, you seen the vi- but the video footage of the actual bear cub that they filmed <laughs> to make it look bigger? Uh, it just looks adorable, little teddy bear, and they're, and they're cowering from it. But on audio, wow, it's terrifying. They uh, yeah, because they got an actual bear, like you say, on, onto the set, didn't they? The uh, rather new stock footage, which always kind of stands out a mile a bit. They um, they got the little bear in, yeah. Such things happen only in the theatre. <laughs> I think that's that's a scene that I could possibly live without. I'm not going to lie. I think that was. Uh, <laughs> I think it's probably a better idea than executed, perhaps. But yeah, yeah, and it's a bit of let, let's put some. Okay, they're out there in the wilds. We've got to show a bit of drama about this. What's life really like living in in this ice age and all the perils of it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's good to explore that a little bit, like um, like Penley and Store living, um, you know, having to just hunt and, and I guess trap things and and uh, I mean they've got a handy plant museum as well that uh, that they're living in there, aren't they? But yeah, it's good to see a little bit of, uh, of what life is like, and it isn't it is an option just to just to go out into the wild, I suppose, and um, and just try and try and live with it rather than revert back to how it was. Yeah, but, but Penley's no bear grills, is he? He's uh, <laughs> he's doing it for real, and he's doing it for the philosophical, uh, non-conformist reasons, rather than trying to. Penley's not there to prove that he's uh, he can take on anything. Mm-hmm. He just he just genuinely, and, and it's not. I mean, him and Stuart do. It's nice when they talk about it, and they, they genuinely believe that they are the future. That um, the, the the all this dependence on technology is a blind blind alley or a dead end. And that, and that people will still be living like they are thousands of years after the technology stopped working. It was quite nice that even before the Doctor meets Penley, when he's just talking to uh, Clint about him, he immediately there's a there's a kinship there, isn't there? It's um, you know, although we don't know the Doctor's backstory at this point, but you know, in, in sort of hindsight, so this is somebody who's turned their back on the the strictures of their own society to to kind of go out and do their own thing. Um, so yeah, he's kind of sticking up for Penley to Clem before they've even crossed paths, which that was interesting. Um, but it's yeah, like a, a kindred spirit. Yeah, he, he, he does the same thing with 
with Clint though, the penny, I think he does also stick up for, for Clint with Penny. He's very much the mediator. Um, you know, he obviously, yes, he does see the, the um, similarities between himself and Penny, but he knows that these two people need to work together. You know, there's not not one that can, you know, um, survive without the other, essentially. So he knows that they need to come to be brought together. So he does exactly the same. You know, he's, you know, uh, honeys his words with, with Penny about Clint and honeys his words with Clint about Penny and does a little bit of matchmaking, really. <laughs> yeah, they need to they need to stop collaborate and listen really as, um, as Vanilla Ice might say. <laughs> I, I'm not gonna lie, I've got I was gonna try and get loads of Vanilla Ice quotes into this podcast, <laughs> and I've already come up with only, but the list is so pathetic, and the chances of me shoehorning them in, I've already just missed it because we talked about the women's clothes and I didn't say the girls looked hot wearing less than bikinis uh, which because <laughs> my, my shoehorn just uh, just wasn't <laughs> wasn't working but just assume I've done loads of them and there we go that would be really funny <laughs> but I'm sure there's I'm sure there's video compilations out there of uh, Vice Warriors moving about to uh, to Vanilla Ice because it just it should be they really should be I mean what's the internet for if it's not provided us with that <laughs> anyone's out there you yeah. <laughs> yeah, rise to the occasion. <laughs> was that a vanilla ice line? I don't. It was actually. Oh. <laughs> I'm looking down at my list and I'm seeing ones that are all completely unusable. <laughs> something, something. Oh, at the end, they all they kick the base to the ground. Which um, there we go. No, that's, <laughs> I'm that's in episode six, and base spelled differently. <laughs> No, Sorry, no. but just just going after I went off that weird avenue. Um, talking about yeah, the way the doctor um, does get them all to you know, does play that mitigating role, but also can, can he can flip between being logical and being really impulsive. It's it's brilliant at near the end when he when they suddenly say they're going to check what his work through the computer, and the doctor flies into a completely childish rage about how how insulting it is that they're doing that, just to show that he's. Um, He's as, as, you know, as fallible to, to, to vanity as anyone else. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I like that, that side of him in this one. The, um, the stuff when he's doing all the calculations. And um, there's a few moments, he just gets some great moments in this. Like I said before, the one where he sees the Ice Warriors and just immediately tries to, to turn around and leave the room. The bit with the, um, when he says to Clint, you know, yeah, you can really help me. Have you got a pencil? And then when he uses the uh, the machine that he can just dial up any any sort of chemicals or drugs or anything like that, and he just gets a glass of water and just downs it. Um, there's some some really nice uh, moments uh, of troutonness. And then the 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 scene early on when the TARDIS lands on its side, um, the on the making of I think they talk about how they just came up with all that themselves, didn't they? In rehearsal, all the uh, the doctor uh, Jamie kneeling on the doctor's hand and all that type of stuff. They uh, they worked so well together. I think yeah, the the cliffhanger for episode five as well is 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 a pure trout moment where you can't get the the stopper out the the test tube <laughs> of the chemical. He's got to think of the Irish warrior, and then he's jumping all over. It's 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 very slapstick. It's very trout, and it's 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 lovely. Yeah, and and defeating them with a stink bomb. <laughs> it's, it's such a benefit of classical English education. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's great, and, and as a kid watching as well, that's the uh, it's um, it's something that can you can get your head around, isn't it? And um, rather than just kind of a techno babble explanation, it's like, oh yeah, this stink bomb's going to incapacitate them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
I think I think you don't always need to have a, a, a technical explanation. You know, you just need to know it's a chemical. It's going to do them in. Off we we'll go. You know, you don't need anything more than that. Sometimes I think sometimes we do look a bit too far into these things and and look for too much of an explanation. It's just it's been disbelief, people. It's yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. think that when when people complain about the sonic screwdriver and they say, well, he just waved a sonic screwdriver and it fixed something. What's the alternative? Is he he lashes together another machine and then sets that off and it saves the day and it's exact it's the exact same resolution or you know kind of mixes some chemicals together and does something. It's basically yeah. it's basically just a shorthand, isn't it? He's just got everything already in one useful device, uh, like a mobile phone, which is kind of what we do, isn't it? We put the the camera yeah. and the music player and everything into. <laughs> into one thing yeah and there's no shortage of devices and gizmos being used in this is there it's all very lots of nice future sciencey things and, and, and excellently named stuff as well but but setting it all in this um georgian mansion uh that on, on audio again that's one of those things where i, I know on, in the episode is they look through a window and see a picture of it basically but in, in the audio you, you're really picturing them in your mind's eye and the narration's good too so it's telling you that they're in this uh incongruous setting and and it, it it matches i suppose like in world war ii when you know the the army would take over old manor houses and stuff wouldn't they because there were there were buildings that were available for that sort of thing yeah schools yeah. as well that sort of thing that you know invasion mm. of the dinosaurs where the unit are in a school that's that sort of setting isn't it yeah yeah and i suppose it fits with the um the modern technology versus tradition kind of uh, themes mm. of this one as well yeah and and the contrast with the side because I mean, some people you know people will say well this could just be cybermen what what's the ice warriors are just an interesting design but it's it, they, they really do go put in the effort to make it different like that these side these ice warriors are horrible they're evil and nasty and spiteful in a way that cybermen are and 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 in the, whereas in the Cybermen story the, the the theory is supposed to always be that they will transform you into this thing into one of them the, the fear in this is sort of the opposite, is that you yourself might end up transforming yourself into dehumanizing yourself in order to stay alive. Not no, The Ice Warriors aren't trying aren't trying to turn you into a computer, but you might turn yourself into one in, while trying to uh, to escape them. Mm. So it's a nice, you know, it is different. And I know there's a lot of bases under siege, but this is this is the definitive base under siege, really, isn't it? This is the base under siege, the motion picture. It's like, it, well, and it is actually a base under siege as well. So they aren't always. See, I was going to ask you, you two about that because, you know, obviously I came into this thinking this is going to be, you know, a base under siege, but there is a base, but is it is it under siege? It doesn't seem to be that under siege. Well, it's the... by the ice, more than by the ice warriors. Yeah. The ice warriors just want to, sort of do want to kill everyone, but only sort of incidentally, don't they? Yes, but yeah. it's only a short part of it where the they've got the, the sonic cannon from the... From this ice warrior spaceship that's that's sort of trained on it, start firing on it at the end. Um, so it's more like a, not sound like a pun, but like a Cold War sort of thing, isn't it? Because they've each got a a weapon that can destroy the other stronghold. So you've got the ionizer that can uh, can destroy the uh, the the ice warrior spaceship. But then I suppose it's like a mutually assured destruction thing there as well, because they don't know if. Uh, blowing, destroying that ship will detonate the engine that will take them all out anyway. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite a Mexican standoff, isn't it? Um, 
between the two. But yeah, I think um, I think Pete's hitting the nail on the head there. It's, you know, the, the siege comes from the ice. Mm. The siege comes from the, the glaciers. You know, encroaching on the base. That's the real danger more than anything. It's just you know the the ice warriors are quite literally a fly in that um, ointment of well, we could stop this, but we can't because we might blow ourselves up. So there's that's that's where the the tension comes from, I, I suppose, in that respect. Yeah, you could still. Yeah, yeah, because you, you could just do a story about the doctor trying to save the world from being frozen and, and trying to save everyone from the glaciers, couldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and the conflict within the 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 people on the base putting that in jeopardy, I suppose, is um, is, is a strong story as well. Yeah, I'm trying to think now. At the end, actually, I, does the doctor doesn't particularly do anything to help them end the ice age, does he? Or does he? No, they, they turn back the glacier a bit, don't they? but but no, the doctor just he, buggers off basically. <laughs> I think that the doctor basically, you know, turns up, he fixes the machine, and leaves them to yeah. it. And I think that's, mm-hmm. but that's the again the one of the strengths is, you know, that final scene that we've we've talked about where none of them can make a decision about, um, you know, what they should do. You know, and ask the computer. I don't ask the computer. The doctor is impartial in that he is very much. You guys need to decide. You know, it's it's not my decision to make; it's your decision to make. Um, he he very much leaves them to do it, doesn't he? It's like kill the moon, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Leave the decision. Uh, you know, the the consequences could be that everyone gets destroyed, um, but like your planet, you you decide. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Combination of orphan fifty five. Kill the man. <laughs> <laughs> just everyone's perfect dream episode. That's yeah. just got something for everybody, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. No, my my um, lonely uh, championing of all from Fifty Five does come from a similar place to this. It's just it's it's a bit like all six episodes of this being run at about six times the usual speed in some ways, but. Um, because yeah, with the, with the plot, yeah, it is unusual that in a story, a six, for a six-part story, to be as sort of linear as this, isn't it? That we meet the people and then they do some things, and then there's a standoff, um, and there isn't that curveball in episode five or, or or anything like that that you would usually get. But it's but it's it's just a story told in a single linear story told in, in six parts, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah, a lot of which do involve creeping around some really impressive spooky caves. But um, com- compared to what you're used to seeing on Doctor Who at that point, that must have just looked uh, just looked spectacular. You know, these these giant ice uh, caves. It looks really impressive, doesn't it? They this because this is where they they went to the film studio, isn't it, to to film this so they could have much bigger sets. But yeah, the, and it, but it genuinely looks like ice as well, which is which is really impressive. Mm. Yeah. There's a bit at the start where I don't know whether it's meant to be deliberately a, a nod to the audience where the doctor points at something and says, "That's not ice, that's plastic," <laughs> and then he cuts in and he's pointing at the dome, which clearly is meant to be plastic <laughs> rather than the fake ice. <laughs> Yeah, quite like yeah, that. I mean, there is there is that pattern, you know. But um, this is this this is what I thought when I was watching it. it was yeah, the story sort of gets gets to about episode three. There's a standoff, so it doesn't really go anywhere. It gets resolved in in episode six, sort of thing. But you know, what would you cut? What would you lose out of it? What would you actually want to to go? Because this is the this is the, the beauty of the six parters is that 
because you have your a story which is extended over such a long like a longer um, period of time you get more time to spend with the characters so everything that all that pattern is is sort of like you know visually really nice stuff it's character work it's stuff that you would actually when I think about it, actually be quite loath to lose most of it I mean yes I, I did say they probably could do without the, the bear attack but again that's when you look at that because the the way they've had to film that bear you get that lovely sort of point of view shot of the bear coming in on on Penley you know yeah. you wouldn't want to lose that would you it's it's no, yeah it's, I think um, I haven't done this one I think they do get better than this season um, because the, the they come up with a trick of, of introducing a new character halfway through um, so you have like the Fury from the Deep where um, I forget her name but the the new commander arrives at the base and you've yeah. got um, Web of Fear where um, the Brigadier you know arrives on scene oh yeah the Mr. That, that dodgy character who we don't trust at all when he first <laughs> yeah, arrives absolutely. Yeah. absolutely so he comes in in episode 3 yeah, not, right. not in from the start he comes, sort of comes in and that gives the story real shot in the arm on both both occasions because that new character gives you a new bit of um, a new bit of emphasis and a new a little boost um, obviously it's missing from this one but I think yeah what would I cut I don't think I would I think I would just you know yeah. are you saying that in terms of adding extra twists and spicy elements put in this story is a little bit vanilla <laughs> the ice warriors <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what you're trying to say or maybe it's what you're trying not to say <laughs> I did notice that, um, just but just going on what you're saying about things that might get cut because they're padding would be seen of as padding because they're not dramatic revelations but there's a really one of those really nice it's that scene where um, Miss Garrett goes to sort of plead with Penley to come back and, and uh, I think it's episode three and uh, and suddenly he calls her Jane and she calls him Eric and they have this conversation on first name terms and it's just the only time that that happens uh, the first time that happens anyway they may do it later as well but because we're so used to these face under siege stories where it's all you know Roberts press the button and, and Jenkins do this do that and when, when you're suddenly having um, Jane and Eric having a conversation about it in a, in a house uh, where he's or in, in the place where he's staying it suddenly makes it that, that domestic element and turns them into more three-dimensional people which is not and it wasn't and, and yeah maybe that is the kind of scene that might get lost if you were saying well you know nobody shoots at anyone in that scene but that's not. Um, I don't know. People would edit things more subtly than that. But you know where I'm coming from. Yeah, but yeah. It's all about having using that extra time to flesh things out. It's when it's if it isn't used for that, and if it just becomes back and forth and, and more shouting, which this which is a trap. That all right, there's the back and forth, but there isn't the more shouting. And at least the back and forth is. Uh, they put extra twists on it. There's the whole bit where Victoria figures out how to use a, a video phone, which is she's, she's quite brainy. <laughs> she's quite sharp, isn't she, for someone who's only just spent who's been the first, however, how old is she? She's seventeen, something like that. Is she meant to be? I don't know actually. Something like that, isn't it? And um, so, yeah. she spent her first seventeen years living this privileged life in this mansion, then gets locked upstairs by the Daleks for a few weeks, which is a weird thing for Daleks to do, I've always felt. But then um, suddenly she's figuring out how to work a video phone and, uh, and, and, and she's putting some acting into it and you get to see her sort of, and you over here and talking about, about it, uh, how it works. I always love it in Doctor Who when somebody, when Doctor Who is doing something on, te on telly in Doctor Who, like, the Doctor gets the Ice Warrior to announce his one weakness while he's being filmed on the video camera so the people back at the base and the kids watching at home are both getting that information through their telly at the same time. It's always a really nice touch. Touching on, on Victoria, she's, 
I don't think she's very well written in this story. I think, um, you know, you've mentioned there that she is quite a capable character. Um, in that one scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, in, in all the other sort of stories that I've watched her in, she comes across a lot more capable than she does in this one. She's given a lot of um, screaming to do and a lot of running away to do, and it just... Uh, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> It was a, it was very Susaned, I thought. Like you've 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 Susaned her, really. Um, I don't know what you guys think about Victoria in this. She could have. She doesn't really. When they they let her escape from the from the spaceship, and like say she's able to use the video phone, she's not able to give them any useful information, really, is she? Um, which is where they could have changed that a little bit. They they she could have uh, provided with with something that could help them, uh, maybe. But she. Um, it just sort of puts her in further peril, I suppose, in the end. Uh, just how yeah, she's it, still still in danger. Yeah, and the screaming and goes on and on. And actually, yeah, so if I was yeah. editing this, I would reduce the amount of mm-hmm. Victoria screaming if I really had to. Because, like, yeah, okay, we know she's frightened. And then the poor kid at the end, in the final episode, part of the Doctor's cunning plan is for her to pretend to be more terrified and scream even yeah. more. <laughs> <laughs> like, she was doing that anyway. When the Ice Warriors, uh, they get that brilliant line. What's that line that says? She is, she is brave, but also very... Oh, no, she has courage, but is also very stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, excuse me, she's right. Right there, just, it's bad enough that they're putting a life in danger, but they're, they're just being rude as well. But um, yeah, I think it is nice to see see that reaction from Victoria though, because it's a very relatable reaction. You know, it's kind of like yes, yeah, so or if you are a seventeen-year-old Victorian who's had you know spent a couple of weeks upstairs with the Daleks and then <laughs> been locked in with the Cybermen and terrorised by Yetis and whatnot, you are going to be, you know scared of these things and you are going to be upset by it so you look forward to you know future years sort of like the Hinchcliffe years and you look at what you know Sarah goes through um, you know what the you know things that like Perry goes through as well mm. and you think of course she's going to react she's you know and it's, it's you, you watch then like Fury from the Deep and you think well there's no wonder this last who wants to leave yeah, um, yeah. she's been traumatised basically from the first moment yeah. from the, the moment the doctor appeared in her life and all her family got killed and then from then onwards it's just day in day out been being absolutely traumatised yeah she has a nice little holiday to go and learn, learn cartography somewhere but that's about it everything else <laughs> yeah we don't, we don't know how that went do we probably when Jamie and the doctor got back everyone was dead and she was screaming <laughs> just honestly Victoria just you best just stay home you're not having good luck with this you know what? Big Finish have just announced the uh, season six B box set. Um, so if uh, if the two doctors from the second doctor's point of view takes place in season six B, and he goes to pick up Jamie and Victoria again, so when she's just escaped from this lifestyle of constant danger and death, <laughs> yeah. give her maybe like a month living with the uh, with the family that she meets um, in Fury yeah. in the Deep, and then the, she just gets like picked up again and uh, and brought back into it. That's it. There's you know a month down the line, we talk about gas all the time, all the talk about this gas. <laughs> I want to be scared again. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's impeller this and impeller that. <laughs> and also it's the late 1960s like she's surrounded by people living lives that she would have considered damning them to the eternal depths of hell quite probably (laughs) but uh 
Mind you, is that what happens in downtime? That, that straight to video things isn't uh, from the was it the eighties or nineties, wasn't it? Early nineties, where I think she's in that she's got like PTSD and is, is being um, controlled again by the um, by the great intelligence um, after having just been yeah traumatized by her travels with the doctor not one of the ones who ends up with uh, going off to set off a brave new life for themselves who knows maybe she's not there. maybe she's head of british gas or something <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I do think she's a she's a better companion than she's made out to be in this story and um and everything but what about jamie because jamie to be fair doesn't get a lot to do in this um you know, no, exactly. actually, and i thought has Fraser Hines gone on holiday? I genuinely thought he'd went on holiday in the episodes because That's... Jamie is unconscious for a substantial part of the second, the, the last third of the book. Um, so I was thinking, oh, yeah, he's gone on holiday. But no, there he is. Luckily, he's trying to get some lines in. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he, also managed to, he also managed to misquote um, uh, Macbeth, uh, but, <laughs> which, is quite, which is great because it was written 200 years or whatever after he was alive anyway. So he's up to the doctor. Must, maybe the doctor taught him it wrongly. Uh, but yeah, he says, lead on Macduff, and it's lay on Macduff. Even I know that. <laughs> he, he, does, that. he does get a good um, costume moment, though, when the... Um, dress him up in a in an ice suit, like a thermal suit, with a see-through plastic, sort of like um, overalls, wearing his kilt. <laughs> that's, that's quite an achievement. <laughs> so the kilt was right. He's <laughs> he's crotch. So there, yeah, that's that's you know, couldn't just put some trousers on. No, they've got to shove him in and some overalls, see-through overalls with his kilt on. <laughs> Yeah, I wondered about that. I mean, I suppose it, it speaks of like a futuristic technology as well of, of keeping them insulated, but they also don't want to make them, uh, I guess, the, the characters look bulky compared to the uh, when they're in the same shot as the Ice Warriors. So if you're wearing the kind of like big um, big parkers and things like that, it's gonna it's gonna bulk them out when you're trying to highlight and emphasize the uh, the difference in scale between the uh, the Ice Warriors and the humans. Mm-hmm. But he gets um, when he gets paralysed, doesn't he? Like like Ian in the Daleks, and it, it lasts yeah. a couple of episodes, doesn't it? It's um, yeah. kind of quite worrying for a while. Yeah, and we do. You're dead right, uh, Fraser. Our fan brains immediately kick in, and we're like, "Like right, Google Fraser Hines foot operation. See if he ended up having a foot. <laughs> there's got to be some behind the scenes reason for that." But no, maybe it was just for the plot entirely for plot purposes to stop him rushing off and rescuing Victoria himself. Perhaps, yeah, it could just be. Oh, and, and Victoria does get to do her trademark, you've killed him, moment, which she does on two occasions in this story, and I'm pretty sure she does it in others as well. Um, and that, that was a missed cliffhanger, I feel, that, and that bit when, you know, they gunned down Arden and Jamie, that was, mm. if that's your cliffhanger, you're coming back next mm. week, aren't you? Mm. Absolutely. yeah. I love the one. I love the one at the end of episode. The resolution to the. I think it's episode three. Oh, you, you already mentioned it. I think is it the one where the doctor? Or am I mixing it up? It's the one where the doctor goes to meet the ice warriors and 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 steps into the uh, into the airlock to get into the ship. And the ice warrior just immediately goes, "Ha ha ha! I'm going to kill you unless you surrender." A cliffhanger. Next episode, I'm going to kill you unless you surrender, Doctor. I surrender. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a quick resolution. <laughs> But, the, but the, some of the episodes really do sit nicely as little twenty-five minute plays. It's, it's almost like this. Uh, this is the week where, yeah, now the Doctor goes and sees the Ice Warriors, and then there's the week when they're trying to rescue someone. And uh, yeah, it's, it's got 
six very neat uh, little plays within it to, to, to satisfy the audience who might not be watching every week. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I don't feel like Arden's a, he's not a big loss to the to the team, is he? Um, when the um, in the first episode when uh, the guy gets killed in the avalanche, and he says something like, oh, "I'm Clint's going to kill me for for losing <laughs> another man." So it's always like the most dangerous job that you can have at this base is working in Arden's team. It makes it sound like it's, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, yeah. a, it's a weekly occurrence that he's losing people. Because even after that guy dies, they're just cracking jokes like two minutes later, aren't they? About um, say <laughs> something like, "Oh, maybe we can turn the ice warrior on Clint." <laughs> Got absolutely no conscience whatsoever. I do like Arden. I think it gives a nice um, sort of counterbalance to Penley that you know he has a scientist who you know likes being a scientist. He likes doing sciencey things. You know, you show him a you know something trapped in the ice. He's going to dig it out with Arden. He's going to go against the orders. But you'll still work at the base. You know, so there's that sort of um, mirror image of Penley. You know, you know um, Penley can't work under those conditions. Arden's more than happy to. He'll just break the rules whenever he feels like it. Um, so I think he's, it's it's good to have him there for that, mm. um, that sort of counterbalance. But obviously, you know, when, like you say, when when he's gone, he's he's not missed, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> no. yeah that's what you thought. The, his leaving card wouldn't have been <laughs> just had good, good luck, farewell, good luck and best wishes, or something like that, <laughs> instead of actual anecdotes in it. Not that you get a leaving card when you get blasted away by a uh, by an avalanche, obviously. <laughs> He's worse than Clint, though, isn't he? He's putting his scientific, uh, he's putting his, his scientific endeavor just above human life or, or anything. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. That's, yeah to him, it's all just uh, just a challenge. So, mm. uh, yeah, he, he does come across a bit better in the book when you know he's, he's, he he wants to make amends for that. He's kind of like, I want to go and find Victoria. Um, you know, that's that's his main motivation for going back up the mountain. Um, obviously, they need to try and find, figure out if there's. Um, radioactive material in the Ice Warrior ship but his main motivation is well you know it's my fault that this has happened you know I'm the one that dug it out I'm the one that plugged the power pack in and melted the guy I'm the one that's you know cost one life in the avalanche and now someone's been kidnapped it's all down on me and he's he wants to go off and and fix it and make it better Um, well he doesn't get past the doorstep but Mm. that's that's why he's that's his motivation yeah, yeah. And a bit of nobility, yes, and and so it's not that you know everyone in the future has become these these um, slaves to the computer. Yeah, it's quite a nice. Um, it, it fits with the story, but it helps with the budget that the the spaceship's entirely uh, encased in the um, gl- glacier as well, isn't it? That there's just mm. they've, they've burnt away just to the door. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it looks really cool, and then the, I, I like the gun effect as well as it as it comes out the side of the ship. Yeah, yeah, you get a lovely bit again with uh, with Patrick Troughton sort of having to dodge underneath the gun when he's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when he's when he's going into the airlock. So that's that gives a good moment as well. And do we all watch the the animation this time as well? Um, it's the first time I watched it since the DVD actually came out, but. Um, it's it's really good. It's it's for one of the older ones. It's really really good quality, isn't it? Yeah, I think it was done a bit more labour intensively, maybe than than, than some of the new ones. Mm. So because uh, it, it 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 kind of shows, yeah, 
It's, 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 it's really nice moments in it. And I love that they did the, um, the trailer as well. There's a bon- on one of the bonus features on the, on the DVD. But this is the era when they were recording special trailers for Doctor mm. Who stories with the cast talking to the camera, wasn't it? And, and it's like, I, I'm Leader Clint and I'm in, responsible for this base and I hope he doesn't end up under siege, you know? It's that sort of <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it's lovely that they, 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 they got on off, they, they're lucky that they've got an off-air recording of it and, and have animated that as well, yeah. yeah. Oh, nothing can beat the one for Web of Fear with Patrick Troughton saying to the kids, you know, if your mummy and daddy might get frightened, so do hold their hands. <laughs> that's just so... That's, that's at his entire era encapsulated in, in, in 30 seconds when, in that bit. Yeah, it's great. I've seen a fan animation of that on YouTube as well, I think. It's, um, it looks really good. But that might be what it is. I'm, yeah, I'm blurring... My memory's blurring them together. Yeah, it's not on the, 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 the Web of Fear one. It's a fan one, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we're still waiting for the Web of Fear animation, so hopefully it, maybe, they've, um, maybe they have animated it as a, as a special feature. For that one, that one's been yeah. announced and it's been available for pre-order for a long time, hasn't it? It seems to be a really long lead time on that. The Web of Fear Special Edition, mm. yeah, because they 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 rushed through the uh, Enemy of the World one came out and quite quick, really quickly, didn't it? And they said there was definitely going to be another one. We all knew what it would be, and then they officially announced it quite a long while later. And but there's still that, yeah, it's still hoping against hope that there's the uh, that episode is going to actually find find its way to where it belongs. Yeah, because I think they're, they're talking about animating the third episode, aren't they, for this release? Um, but yeah, you never know. At least we kind of know it's out there. Yeah, it's frustrating. Whereas, sadly, the other two of this one, it would be, well, they're no less likely to turn up than anything else, I suppose. But, mm-hmm. uh, but there's been no, no clues or leads that we ever might. So yeah, it's good, great that we've got them animated. It is. It's, it's still a shame that they're not. We haven't got the episodes because I think mm. you know, for me, one of one of Patrick Troughton's greatest strengths is his face. Yeah. You know, when he's he's acting, the the facial expressions that he pulls are, you know, he says more with a with a look on his face than than he does with his with his voice or his or his words. So it is. It's it's a crying shame that out of all the doctors, you know, his is the ones that are missing because he is the most visual one. I feel. Um, and you know, I'm not going to knock an animation. I'd rather have an animation than, you know, than nothing. Um, but yeah, just yeah, because it's the, the expressions that would dart across his face in two seconds yeah. when when the obviously animators just can't can't do it at that level. Yeah, there's a great bit in um, faceless ones, and it's very it's fine in the animation. It's nice. There's a bit where him and Jamie do a bit of tomfoolery with a newspaper. One of them's peering over the newspaper and trying not to be seen, and it looks it's, it's fine on the, on the animation. It's great to see it, but you just think. Oh, I bet the looks that they were giving each other and the eye contact between uh, Fraser Hines and Troughton in that scene would be absolutely, absolutely brilliant. And uh, yeah, so he's hoping <laughs> one day. There's little bits in the existing episodes here, like when they first arrive in the, um, in the manor house um, and they do the, um, each face appears around the corner, uh, one on top of the other, um, or the bit where Patrick Troughton sort of, and I've mentioned this a couple of times already, but but when he retreats from the ice warriors when he sees him, which if those episodes didn't exist, you you might not have any recollection of, especially if they were sort of just ad libbed on the day, um, or whatever the physical version of ad libbing is uh, for for a, for a movement that you know that maybe not in the scripts or the camera scripts or anything like that that are kind of lost forever. That uh, yeah, that you'd never know about if um, if those episodes weren't still here. Yeah, yeah. I think that they had the uh, all the Doctor Who teams. These were the ones who had the most liberal approach to the script and sticking to it, weren't they? 
because <laughs> if they're confident enough and they could just read each other that well and they know that the, the, they would only do retakes if, if, if it was a complete catastrophe, like, they could just muck about a bit. Mm-hmm. And, well, not muck, muck about is the wrong phrase to use because they're professionals absolutely in their element, aren't they? They're, they can have, But they can go that bit further and have that bit of extra fun with it while they're, while they're serving it up and doing it, doing it their own way. But yeah, you can see why that, that that did put his head in when he was trying to get them. To, he was waiting for his cue words in the three doctors to be exactly as they were written in the script. <laughs> and he just says something more along, more or less along those lines. <laughs> yeah, because I read that um, that even the the line that Victoria says when they arrive in the house saying, oh, it's like my home, that, that that's just something that she put in just as a little character note. Um, it's probably one of the things maybe if she's if she's putting things like that in Deborah Watling that helps to to maintain that that sort of through line that um, that like you say does get sometimes get lost in um, in other companions um, but she's she's reiterating that like um, the way Louise Jemison would um, would always take contra- contractions out wouldn't she in a script and uh, and put stuff in so that. The um, the original character, as envisaged, was always maintained throughout her performance. Yeah, it's a really neat technique that she had for that. Yeah, and of course we can forget that um, that that uh, the Broadfield was um, a really experienced child actor before she came to. Um, so I just called. Deborah Waterfield, that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Correct me. Victoria Watling. Thank you. Victoria Watling, that was it. <laughs> uh, yeah, William Troughton and Patrick Hartnell were all my favourite Doctor Who's. Uh, she, but yeah, she turns up on Talking Pictures TV all the time, aged like 10, in, in all sorts of things, because of her dad, Jack, having been a, a grandee of the stage and having all sorts of contacts in the business, and that got her away in. And uh, I think they were a bit of a two-for-one booking when they first booked her and they first hired her to be the companion and book Jack Watling as a big name to be um, the, in, um, in uh, the Bond uh, the Snowman. Um, but so she wasn't at all, she knew the she knew her way around a TV studio as much as anyone. And, and yeah, that, that suddenly it clicks. Now, when you mentioned that she'd added that line, uh, yeah, she'd got the confidence to do that. I bet. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, this, this team, um, you know, second doctor, uh, Jamie and Victoria, they, they are a really strong one, um, you know, and it's, it's it comes from that um, camaraderie between the three actors. I think you know the, you know they were so comfortable in each other's company, um, knew how to play to each other's strengths. You know, again that opening scene with the, you know the TARDIS on its side. You know, if they put that together, then that is, that just shows you, you know what they can do when when they let loose. I think. And it puts light to this idea that you have to have a companion who's from contemporary Earth as the audience identification figure. Like, I've never really bought into that. I think you've got this team, you've got the Doctor and Romana and K-9 and just absolutely terrific stories with, without that. I mean, that's putting aside the fact that Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and all this other stuff is fantastically popular <laughs> and there is no audience identification figure from, from contemporary Earth in them. Uh it's uh, yeah, I think I think the series has become very hidebound to that um, in the new yeah. series. Yeah, and and this you're right, and, and this the, there's no more '60s companion than Jamie. 
it's, it's just he's exactly in, in, in an uh, audience um, association figure for, for people in, in the 60s and, and now he's, he's still do it it's like when um, when Bill was announced as, as the new companion for Capaldi and there was all these shots of Pearl Mackey wearing these really 80s t-shirts I, I got my hopes up and I thought we were going to get a companion from the 80s uh, and that, that would have had some re- really good mileage uh, but uh, that was no, I'm just very happy with how she turned out, but um, that that would have been a really nice thing to have. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. you can you can hold up a mirror to to the current world by uh, seeing it through the eyes of somebody uh, to whom it's new. It's, yeah, and like with with when Tom was with Leela and Romana, he becomes the person who understands modern Earth in a way that they don't, and, and the, the, you can flip it around and, and do some get, get some nice material out of that. Mm. Well, yeah, I think um, you know the new series would benefit from coming from that angle. You know, um, you know, bring in someone who is, you know, not of this earth, and you know, see how that works out for them. Yeah, I think Noddles, the the only not yeah. contemporary here, Simon, but, but but he was written to sort of make you forget it a lot of the time. Um, but it had really nice moments when they did use it. He was very much a third wheel, I think, Nardo. Um <laughs> In, in that series you know he worked better in the sort of Christmas specials but in his own series it was just kind of like pottering around in the background wasn't he wasn't much of a you know a, a, a driving force in the story at all no yeah he was just a little extra in a way I mean, I mean an extra feature yeah. he's a real actor obviously. <laughs> well, very well acted but, but yeah what wasn't often given anything in the foreground to do because we teased a little bit with Clara in the Snowman, weren't we? That it looked because we knew that Jenna Coleman was joining. That that seemed to be her first story. We were going to get somebody from uh, from a different era. Uh, but then there's the rug pull of of her dying, obviously, at the end of uh, the end of that episode. Uh, but no, I was um, I was quite excited by that idea at the time. Yeah, it would have really suited the Moffat era's aesthetic as well. I mean, someone from the Victorian times that just it just would have suited the if they'd just gone with that and she'd become this Victorian woman who adapted to uh, to, to modern stuff uh, and felt as at home in our era as her own that would have been brilliant modern Victoria essentially yeah mm-hmm. Of course, maybe Victoria found life harrowing just generally, like whenever she went to the post office and like, they asked her for some money, it was like, ah! <laughs> maybe, she, maybe we're not seeing her on a bad day and this is just what her life was always like, day in, day out. <laughs> We've not got uh, we've not got the full full range of the full data set to actually know what being <laughs> Victoria was like. Be fair, she she has had a tough life. She's often by the Daleks. I know. Yeah, there's not. Yeah, yeah that's going to take its toll, isn't it? Locked up a Cybermen. That's yeah. That's, that's going to have a toll on anyone. That is. Hmm. Mm. And then, yeah, decide to spend the rest of her life living on an oil rig in the 1960s, just in time for hyperinflation and mass unemployment to kick in. Just, just when the 60s stops being fun, yeah. <laughs> she then, gets, she then uh, uh, arrives in it, yeah. Well, if the doctor's told her, give her a tip of the wink, what shares to invest in? Uh, That's true, yes. You know, put your money in here, Victoria. Yes. Colour TVs. Yep. <laughs> this little company called Apple. You might want to look at. A little nest egg for you. Yeah. So does it surprise... When you look at this now, is it obvious that this is this is a monster that's going to be up there? Pretty much number, number three, would we say? Classic who? After Daleks and Cybermen? It is, isn't they? are number three, aren't they? Yeah. What do you say? Suntarons, maybe vying oh, for... Maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe sometime, yeah. Joint third, 
But um, they're, they're in that category, aren't they? They're just they're, they're not the ones who just happen to have come back more than once for a novelty value. They're, they're, those four appearances do give them that a bit of extra, bit of extra weight. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the I guess they sort of. I think in the nineties they became the, the Doctor Who fans who wanted Doctor Who to be much more serious and sophisticated, like Star Trek is. Um, decided that they were the Klingons of Doctor Who, that they, they were the noble race with the complex samurai stuff, um, which is a bit of a bit of a glow up, you could say. <laughs> uh, but um, you can see why that they were seen as having that potential. But I think the fandom really wanted that in the 90s. We wanted a classic Doctor Who monster that was a sophisticated alien species. Um, They're the only ones in the classic series that, that weren't always the bad guy, though, weren't they? Because you've yeah. got the Curse of Peladon where... They are what they are presenting themselves as, so they they're already a step ahead of any other monster, I suppose, and that they do have a little bit of a um, grey area and, and complexity like that. That's true. Yeah. It kind of leads you down to thinking, well, you know, are the ice warriors are seen in the ice warriors actually in evil ways, or is it just literally Varga is not a nice person? Yeah, yeah. Like, he, <laughs> you know, he's he's the he's the nasty one isn't he he's the commander but he's a real nasty piece of work whereas the rest of the ice warriors are off kind of living living the life living their best life nice know. warriors yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice baby um, yeah. you know because yeah when you, uh, I think that is a good a good thing that, that was, was done with them was to, to, to you know twist that and go well actually we'll make them you know uh, we'll make them good now they are not the you know and antagonist to these two stories that are actually um, decent people so that's a, a different layer to it doesn't it um, yeah because we don't have endured as much as they have yeah because we've had the Daleks do that but obviously it's all been about the Doctor revealing yeah. that it's actually a trick <laughs> but um, yeah yeah this idea that the Ice Warriors must have also um, you know non-military wing to their civilization too that they have bureaucrats and shops and, you know <laughs> post offices uh, it's nice that they, they never use the word Mars I don't think in this story anyway themselves they just they do it Varga always says I'm from the red planet yeah and that's just got a, I don't know why that's not why would they call that it's ironic but it, it realises why would they call their planet what we call it mm -hmm. and so it doesn't but then uh, they end up getting named after what the first <laughs> like who looked at them said <laughs> uh, good job imagine if he said he's got a stupid hat on <laughs> that would then be what they were called for the rest of the stupid hats especially as everyone on this ship is destroyed presumably with no record of, of what they were called as well <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. and these are ones from the distant past of the world although it's just forgotten about with Seeds of Death isn't it it's just they're back yeah. <laughs> they don't make a thing in Seeds of Death of the ones that we met previously were from another age, I don't think, do they? No. It's a, it's they, just, a, they just crack on with the baddies. I think the TARDIS translation circuit from that point onwards just translates it as ice warriors, no matter what they're, uh, <laughs> the other aliens are. Well, once you've added something to the custom dictionary, it's a real bother to get yeah. rid of it, isn't it? If you've, if you've added a typo to your custom dictionary, you're stuck with it. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. It's like the chameleon uh, circuit. correct, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think um, I think part of the longevity as well it has to come from you know Bernard Breslau's performance as well. Mm. You know um, we talked about it at the start, but he puts such um, feeling and 
power into into Varga that you know it's it's a little surprise that he, they wanted to see him again. Um, you know, if you look at the other, you know, sort of um, antagonists of, of the Trouton era, obviously the Cybermen come back again, the um, the Yeti come back again. You know, the only other ones that come back are is the Ice Warriors, and it's it is probably because of of how well they performed the first time was how well they received and thought, oh yeah, we'll bring them back. I suppose the the extent to which they can be mimicked by by kids in the playground as well. Um, in the way that you, it's more difficult with a, a quark or a chumbly or whatever. The ice warriors have got a particular way. Of I, I just, I'm detecting that you've tried. It's the voice of experience, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I still maintain you can play quarks in the playground. All you need is a cardboard box. That's <laughs> true. Cardboard box, flappy arms. <laughs> Sorted. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they've, they've got. I think they've got. The, they've got the personality. They've got the star factor, star quality, isn't it? I yeah. swear, basically, they've got a bit of star quality. They're just, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're the proper, the, the real business when it comes to uh, to monsters. <laughs> and a, a great striking design, um, which, uh, which you know, is really um, in a good silhouette and all that kind of stuff as well. Mm, mm. The clamps. Yeah, it's it's very iconic. I mean, we've. we've you know, if you Google Ice Warriors, you will see that picture of Victoria, mm. um, you know, with the Ice Warrior behind her. Um, you know, the target cover by Vizcavios is, you know, iconic, isn't it? The Ice Warrior with the jazz hands is, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's an iconic one. So, yeah, a lot, a lot comes from the design as well. Um, and I think a part of that is because that design, although being clearly alien clearly a monster does still allow for that facial expression and um, so you can get that performance out of it um, where it's not something you can get out of a quark or it's not something you can get out of a um, you know one of the one of the guys from the faceless ones it's it sets them above a bit you know even a yeti you can't get much out of a yeti um, <laughs> out of a, a despite just like months at the rada they can, they can, <laughs> it still can't do it if you're just uh, if you're clamped in all that fur but yeah just with the jawline sticking out is enough and then I, I mean I suppose that that's why they had the innovation for the seeds of death of inventing the ice lord who's much more of his face is visible mm. uh, and lets you um, lets the actor you know, can sort of sneer, or you, you can just see facial. You can actually see emotions on the face to give them to give a little bit more of that. But really, for this first story in particular, you don't. It's not. It's not necessary because they to have that because they just make such a good impression and and, and immediately let you know that they're the, uh, the new baddies in town. Yeah. You know? And with both both of their reappearance in the modern series as well, they they haven't been out and out villains, have they? They've they've had that complexity they've had their own motivations and uh, you know they haven't just been monsters to destroy mm. and defeat no they've had the, the layers more more evident in the in the most recent appearances haven't they mm. yeah and it's one of, and they're one of those ones where there's, it, it's wide open for you to go in and create more of a culture for them yeah it's not like something like the Santarans, which is you know pretty much just you know black and white. We are war. We go to war. That's what we do. We got yeah, this. we've got a war office. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's a, that's a really interesting parallel, isn't it? With them because and they're such a, a, a intended as a, you know like a, a parody of militarism. 
so that the whole point of them is they're there to sort of be satirically dumb soldiers, aren't they? Yeah, yeah whereas, whereas the Oz Warriors actually know that they really mean it. They really mean business, yeah. I suppose it's more of a Star Trek thing. I'm sorry, I haven't watched that much Star Trek, but it seems like mainly the races on that are one human characteristic, um, you know, kind of uh, to, to, to the exception of others. So you've got the, I don't know what we call the really greedy ones and uh, the, I suppose the Klingons are the, the militaristic warlike ones on, on Star Trek as well. Yeah. I think I think Star Trek does does benefit from again being able to um, expand on that one characteristic and and you know build around it. So you have got the Klingons, yes, they are the militaristic ones, but then you've also got like the honour that goes with that, mm-hmm. and you kind of build a culture around that. You've got the Ferengi, the you know based on on commerce, you know, and you one, build yeah. your you know that's your that's your starting point, but then they built a lot of layers around that um, you know with Doctor Who there's there's not that much opportunity to do that you know um, if you you think like um, the Ferengi were very prominent in Deep Space Nine um, so you've got a series of, of 22 episodes you know and that mm-hmm. character is in can feature in all of those episodes whereas with Doctor Who you can't do that you've very much got like a one shot um, story so you've got to kind of set your stall out and deliver it in in 45 minutes or you know four parts six parts whatever um, you know the Ice Warriors you know does its best you know but it's, it's not until we see these further appearances um, you know in Seeds and Curse and Monster of Peladon where we'll get to add those, those extra layers yeah and that's quite a, and they're almost the exception for Doctor Who aren't they for having that I, su- I suppose that the shape of it comes out of that's the, the Star Trek has this cohesiveness, doesn't it? It's Gene Roddenberry's vision initially, and and, for, and and then everyone who everything that gets added to that universe has to play a part in it, and and and, and gets picked up and taken forward. Whereas Doctor Who is this revolving door, isn't it? Of just new producers coming in, and yeah. if you're lucky, they hire a, a fan continuity consultant, uh, but that can that can backfire. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so for, you know, two two or three years down the line, you can have a show that's got very little in common with, with the show that was on three years ago. It's, it's suddenly it's about a man with a yellow car who drives around <laughs> fighting a supervillain, which which has nothing in common with, with the Ice Warriors. Yeah, uh, so that's yeah that's why I guess we don't get so often get races and species that, uh, that really get get drawn on, a, on that broad canvas like Star Trek can. Mm-hmm. I think the, probably the, the exception and one that we do get is um, Vastra, with the Silurians, um, you know, we, we do start to get, you know, bits of, of that culture coming through Vastra um, in the in the Moffat era. But again, it's it's not as um, as well built up as 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 you did you get with Star Trek or, or with the Ice Warriors. I think yeah. But again, you know, even with even with Vastra, you get Strax in, and Strax doesn't have any dimensions other than comedy potato. Um, yeah. You yeah, know, the Sontarans don't get added to in, in the modern era. Um, the Silurians do to a certain extent, but really, again, coming back, it's only the, the Ice Warriors that we see um, anything more of. Um, the Silurians, I was going to say, the Silurians haven't got that one key characteristic that um, we've mentioned, you know, whereas the, the Ice Warriors are militaristic, but haven't got anything with the Silurians other than, you know, this planet used to be theirs. Yeah, it's like the, yeah, they're meant to be a mirror to humanity and all of it, all of its weaknesses and strengths, rather than 
an exemplar of one of them, aren't they? That's a good yeah. point. Yeah. So it, was it Absalom Dark that had a Ice Warrior crew member on his ship? Was it was it an Ice Warrior? I mean, it's so long since I've uh, kind of read those comics, that kind of rang a bell. Absolutely I remember those one in the when the TV movie came out. Came out the Doctor uh, the and, and the Radio Times started a Doctor Who comic strip that was like just a one one liner. Yeah. Uh, so it was in like four panels a week, uh, mm. and in that the Doctor's companion was an Ice Warrior, which I think tied into the Dying Days, the the last. Um, so the first Paul McGann New Adventure book, which was the last official mm. New Adventures book with the Doctor in it. Yeah, that's yeah. So I don't know if that's the same thing. That's that's the same memory that you that, that's triggering what you're remembering, or, or if there was an Absalom Dark thing as well. Maybe there was. Maybe yeah, because they're great to draw. They're great in comics, aren't they? I can see why anyone who's doing a Doctor Who comic might want to have uh, pull up an Ice Warrior because they're so distinctive and yeah. Yeah, because yeah, is it a Cold Day in Hell um, Seventh Doctor strip as well, aren't they? Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they do look great. Yeah, I forgot about the dying days. That's the only one I haven't got. I read it when it was on the um, old BBC Cult website. The only new adventure I never got hold of. It was the one, the one that got away. Yeah, and there was, a, there was a time when those book sales shops used to have them all stacked high for fifty p each, and they couldn't yeah. get rid of them. <laughs> Probably not that one though. Actually, yeah, no. that was the problem with that one, wasn't it? It didn't last long enough to get remained because they lost the license. Yeah. So. Yeah. but yeah rightly a classic story yes it doesn't have as many twists and turns as some six-parters do but that's just it, it's still doing its thing and it's just really really sets the scene and creates this world uh, with, with some really believable characters in it yeah that's, that's what you want from Doctor Who isn't it definitely yeah. and I, I think it benefits from from experience in all six episodes as well um, I think I came away from the VHS with, like I said, those reshortened versions of two and three, yeah. um, and you're not getting the full experience. Then I think now that they're animated in particular, you can you can experience it and appreciate it a lot more. Yeah, I think it's you know it's enjoyable. Um, I think yeah, we've talked the story might stall a little bit in the middle, but you don't feel it when you're watching. You kind of you are swept along. You know um, you enjoy each episode individually. You enjoy them as a as a whole it's uh, I think it's a really strong enjoyable story definitely well thank you very much it's been a real pleasure discussing it with you gentlemen uh, if you let our listeners know where they can find you elsewhere on the internet um, yeah so I am prof underscore quite a mess on Twitter and I'm at Felix Fraser on Twitter I'm at Quark McMallis and you can follow the podcast at Trap1 underscore and you can find all our previous episodes at trap1.podbean.com or on your podcatcher of choice. And if you're feeling particularly generous, if you've enjoyed this one, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes to help other Doctor Who fans find the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.